Welcome back to the Movement Underground Radio. This is your host, Mike Stella, and today's guest is an athlete that I'm so excited to sit down and talk to um, because he is arguably the best player at his position in his sports history. So how often do you get a chance to talk to an athlete of that caliber? The sport, you ask, is lacrosse. The position is face-off, and the man is Greg the Beast Grinling. Greg Uh, began his storied lacrosse career as a four-year letter winner at Penn State University, where he also studied strength and conditioning, before moving on to professional lacrosse, where he dominated the MLL, including six MLL All-Pro selections, five All-Star selections, and a league MVP. He has a number of single-season face-off records in that league, before he strapped it up for Team USA and won gold medal in the 2018 World Lacrosse Games. Uh, He then went on to retire before strapping it right back up and taking part in the inaugural 2019 PLL or Premier Lacrosse League season. He's the owner and operator of the Faceoff Academy, which is a nationally recognized face-off specific training curriculum that he developed and operates. He is also an incredible father, steward of the game of lacrosse, and just an all-around incredible guy to be around. I'm super excited to have Greg on the show today. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Greg the Beast Gorenlian. Welcome to the Movement Underground Radio with your hosts, Mike Stella and Anthony Pranzo. What do high-performance athletes and people have in common? High-performance mindsets. We are here to take an underground look at the stories behind the athletes, therapists, trainers, and people who push their own limits so that we may expand our own. Take a deep dive underground with us in three, two, one. Hey guys. Hey guys. Greg Beast here. Uh, Greg Grenlian from, um, I'm a professional lacrosse player, Team USA lacrosse player uh, for a really long time, for about 14 years. And I'm recently retired, full-time face-off coach and uh, content creator for um, both Face-Off Academy and the PLL now. Awesome, man. Thank you again so much for, for coming on. I've been really looking forward to So when I started this podcast, I wrote down a, a bunch of athletes that I was hoping would come on the show. And obviously you were top of that list because it's, um, you know, again, I introduced you earlier and kind of went down some of your lacrosse accolades and which there are many of them. Um, and so it's yeah. not, you know, for me, it's not often that you get to sit down to, and talk with arguably the best player at his position in the sport, which is awesome. And, and beyond that, you've done so much for the sport of lacrosse. And, you know, I talked about on my episode when I first launched the, the radio show, you know, kind of my lacrosse history. And, you know, I was a face-off guy also in college. So, you know, you and I kind of hit it off a few years back when we first met, um, which was prepping for that 18 lacrosse world games, right? Yeah, and World Games, um, and also you helped me out with my final year with the Lizards uh, when I had debilitating low back pain. And uh, I think one of the things that we both – we had a mutual respect, not just because we both had faced off, we played lacrosse, but we both took what we do for a profession very, very seriously. And we didn't just want to do it to make money. We did it because it was a passion and we're, like, obsessed with being very good at it. So I think, uh, you know, it was very easy to to be friends because we had that common denominator for sure. Dude, I really appreciate that. Um, so what are you doing these days? Like, you know, obviously with, you know, being locked down and, you know, so for those that don't know, obviously Greg's the owner and operator of the Faceoff Academy, which is a nationally based uh, face-off training program curriculum. You've got a number of coaches that work under you, obviously some of the best guys at the position currently in lacrosse. Um, so what are you guys doing now kind of in light of all this? I mean, obviously I've seen some of your stuff on social media, but can you share like what you guys are doing to keep engagement and, get the guys what they need? Yeah, I think you're seeing, you know, this whole uh, – it, it was funny, we were talking about it, me and uh, a couple of my buddies were talking about the other day where, um, you know, my friend was like, I didn't realize there were 400 professional personal trainers online. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like uh, overnight everyone became like a, a fitness guru. Um, but everyone's just trying to, you know – stay relevant and keep their their name out there. I think the difference was for the Faceoff Academy is we we have been preparing to do virtual training for a long time just because we can't get everywhere all over the country and there's right. kids that need to be coached that we just can't get a hold of. So we had this Zoom online training platform ready 
we just never pulled the trigger because we were so busy traveling. We didn't have a chance to do it. So um, almost overnight, we pulled the trigger on it and it's been a huge hit. And it's interesting because the first time we did it, we're like, oh man, like, I don't know if people are going to enjoy this experience because you like being in front of your coach. And I think because this whole quarantine and the lockdown has social distancing has become a norm uh, relatively quickly. So now it's almost just natural for people to get coached virtually now. So that's what we've been doing. We're trying to create content. We've been doing um, free webinars for college coaches and high school coaches all over the country and trying to spread our knowledge base to coaches and players as best we can. I think one of the coolest things about lacrosse is that information wants to be spread out. Information wants to be shared as much as possible, where uh, I think in a lot of other sports, you know, football particularly, kind of information is kind of held close to the chest. Um, sure, yeah. Lacrosse, we openly share it because we wanted the game to spread. So it's been really cool. It's been, uh, it's been very welcoming. And I think because we do it at such a professional level, that it's going to help us long-term in business for sure. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, like I, 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 uh, I'm the covering athletic trainer for your national showcase. I've done it like the last three years in a row. And when, when you say professional level, first class, like you guys do it so, so well, I mean, just everything from the organization to the curriculum that you guys have put together, you know, and again, for me, I come from also a point where as a, as a player, when I was in high school and college, you know, face-off position was kind of relegated to like, all right, well, you know, we'll put somebody there, but it wasn't emphasized really. And really like the technique was who could cheat the best, right? Like, so that was kind of like the, the, the stigma around that position. And, and you were somebody that came in and really not only legitimized that position, but made it to the level that it can absolutely change a game instantly by having a guy at the X that could just dominate. And, and in doing so, it's actually sparked a lot of potential rule changes. And you're really involved in that process as well for not only just like collegiate lacrosse, but also the professional leagues and even the international game. Can you tell us a little bit about that and your role in kind of shaping the position and also in doing so shaping the game and the future of the game? Sure. Thank you. I think before the FOA started, there was a whole bunch of folks out there that maybe were trying to make a quick buck, you know, and. When you, I tell guys all the time, if you go on YouTube and you look for pre-2012 face-offs, as you know, stances were all over the place, right? Everyone just did whatever they thought was supposed to happen. Maybe sure. a neighbor taught you how to face-off, and so you just did it that way. And you would watch film of other guys doing other weird stuff, and you try to copy that. But there was no consistent formula. And like to your point, cheating was rampant. And right. people were just – they didn't care about the game. They just wanted to make a quick buck teaching cheating. And, um, you know, I remember when we started the FOA, I was a full-time strength coach. And during the summer, a lot of my clients would go away for the summer. So I remember talking to two of my friends, Chris and Jerry, that were at the professional level as well, saying, you know, we should do clinics. We should just do a tour during the summer and just do some clinics. Um, and they were on board with it. I blew my knee out in 2011. And during that entire summer, I really hunkered down on the position and I started applying my biomechanics background to our position because unlike other positions that people don't know, the face-off is consistent. The ball is always in the same spot. The approach is always the same. The angles are always the same. So you can legitimately break that down biomechanically just like you could an Olympic lift or a golf swing and you keep it the same every time. And if it's the same every time, it's easy to self-correct. And that's the first time anyone started teaching a system. And when we started teaching that, we noticed immediate dividends for myself on the field. I broke all of my personal records. I had the best season ever my year after my ACL. And then every kid that we coached just took off and dominated their area. So now even the people who hate me the most who teach faceoffs out there copy exactly what I teach. And that's good for the game. And my attack mode was, I want to get rid of cheating because to your point, you know, there were those of us out there that were trying to make it on a technical basis and we were going against people that were cheating. And even though we were doing well, we knew that one day I'm going to retire from this sport and I don't want people to sit there and just laugh at what I did and what I dedicated my life to and say, Oh, you just must've been a good cheater. So 
we not yeah, only totally. came in like a bull in a china shop and started ramming our system down people's throats, but also we got into it with the NCAA. We got it, we got in front of people, and and there's people out there who still hate my guts just because of how outspoken I am as an advocate for the position, which had never happened before. Nobody sat there on Twitter and battled with people and talked about the talking points of X, Y, and Z of why the faceoff is important, why you should be giving these guys credits, what we should be getting rid of in the position, what we should be bringing into it. Um, so it's become a full-time job. The coaching is actually the easiest part. Um, dealing with the haters and, and, and trying to be an advocate for our position and move it forward has been the, more of the full-time job for sure. Uh, you know, I think it's an Aristotle quote that said, you know, if you, if you don't want to be controversial, say nothing, do nothing and be nothing. And, and so, mm -hmm. you know, it really takes, you know, uh, a strong person and somebody who's going to stick to their convictions to, you know, tr you know, to be the first guy through the fence, right? Be, the first guy through the fence is always the bloodied guy. You know yep. what I mean? And you took that on your shoulders. And again, the guys that you have working with you and under you are just, again, they took your philosophy and your mantra and they executed it at such a high level. It's been unbelievable to witness. And you kind of stole some of my questions. I really wanted to kind of go back to, cause I knew the history that, you know, the FOA's Genesis came out of that injury. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, tell us about like sure. the injury and kind of, you know, maybe some personal lessons that you learned during that process. Obviously you learned, you know, like in that time you basically, and again, uh, this is kind of like an homage or like a prelude to what we're going through now. Right. Which is some hardship yes. as a nation. Yeah. And, and you were able to take that, that those lemons and turn it into some lemonade and you've impacted so many lives as a result, uh, including your own, right. And the guys around yeah. you. So can you elaborate on the injury and how it happened and what that process was like for you to come back to professional cross? Sure. I have a very good support system with my wife and, um, She's always been in my corner when it came to lacrosse. And before I blew my knee out, I played professional lacrosse um, on weekends. And I was a full-time strength coach working 11, 12 hours a day during the week. And at the time, I had – so in 2008, I was traveling every Friday to San Francisco to play my games then fly back on a red eye and then go to work at 6 a.m. on Monday. And my 6 a.m. client would always come in being like, did you win? Because he was really worried that how hard I was going to be on him was directly <laughs> correlated. And I was telling Robert, it's going to suck on Monday no matter what, so don't worry about it. But um, so strength training was my full time. You know, you know how, how that life goes. Textbooks sure. all over the place, um, constantly tweaking, you know, programming and um, – you know, reading up and, and that was my full-time thing. And face-offs were just something I was naturally good at. And I just, you know, I was like a slightly above 50% guy in the pros, which was, you know, pretty good. Um, but it's uncharacteristic of me because anytime I've ever done anything, it could be gardening, it could be mowing the lawn, it could be anything. I try to do it as best as I can and as efficiently as I can. And even though I was studying face-offs and, and kind of looking at guys and, and their weaknesses and trying to be good, and I've had some really good games at that point, I wasn't reaching my potential in it. And I wasn't giving it enough of the care and uh, respect that I should have been. So when I blew my knee out in 2011, I'm sitting on the couch the whole summer thinking, man, like, this could be it for me. This could be the end of my lacrosse career. And I don't think I ever really truly gave this specific position as much attention and care as I should. Like, I haven't hit my ceiling. And that was the first time it really sparked in me, like, oh, my God, like, this is actually what I love the most. I love playing lacrosse the most. So I remember, actually, the women's – I think it was the Women's World Cup. Um, I remember watching the Women's World Cup that summer, uh, and I would be doing that, and I'd be studying and breaking down the face-off. And those were the two things I did in between my PT all summer. And – I remember one thing my wife always says, and she, she's like, I give you credit. Like, I, I'm not a person who dwells. Um, if something bad happens, I, even though I'm an emotional person naturally, I try to be analytical immediately. Because if you're focusing on fixing a problem, you don't have time to complain and whine about it. And I don't, and that's a big thing for me. It's, it's a big thing in our house with our, with our three-year-old. You know, if you're not going to do something different, don't whine about it. Right. right. You can't complain that something's the way it is. So for me, it was like I gave myself 48 hours to feel terrible about myself. And then it was time to go to work. So we go right to the PT. We start preparing for the surgery. We get ready for surgery. Post-surgery, I was putting in every bit of effort I could. And for the first time, I started breaking the system down. And 
when I healed up, because I blew my ACL, I tore my lateral meniscus, and I had a microfracture. Um, Fun. And, with, and yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Right, that's me. If, if you're gonna do something, do it big. Right, exactly. Uh, go, go for it uh, all. I, I'm right there with you, man. I, I had a very similar <laughs> playing lacrosse. So yeah. Uh, so I, 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 know the I believe it was uh, it was July 11th. I think I had my surgery, and January, the last weekend of January, the ensuing year, I was playing in a tournament. Wow. Um, which was a pretty quick turnaround for the microfracture for sure. Um, and really I had a fast telegram. turnaround. Uh, yeah, for those of you guys that don't know, microfracture is, you know, when you have a cartilage defect on the surface of the bone. So in the knee, like either the femur or the tibia typically. And microfracture is basically where the surgeon goes in there and picks at essentially the gaping wound where the cartilage used to be to stimulate some bone growth. And so that's a really tough surgery to come back from because like even like if you look at the evidence and this is me just geeking out on sports med stuff now but you know it's like a 50 50 shot really like that's mm -hmm. what the evidence says it's like 50 50 that you can get back to doing what you do um and and again you were one of those people that came back and not only came back but did it at a ridiculously high level well i think um i remember that my physical therapist at the time um uh, david endress who's in uh at spear physical therapy in, in manhattan and he was telling me he's like look Microsac microfractures suck. He's like, you're going to be non-weight bearing for six weeks. Cause it's like putting down grass teeth. Right. He's like, that's going to be the hardest part. The hardest part for you is going to be maintaining and trying to build full range of motion without being able to put your leg on the floor. He's like, that's going to be the tough part. He's like, now the good news is, is that you're not playing basketball. He's like, if you were a basketball guy or a tennis guy, I would say this is going to be really, really tough. Right. He's like, but because you're a lacrosse player, you're in cleats, you're on a softer surface, and it's more about getting the strength back and being able to cut. He's like, you can do this. And um, I remember after this first six weeks, I was working already. I, I was, my wife would, she works at Michael Kors. She would take the, the B train down to work, come back, take me to physical therapy to Midtown East, take me back in the cab, fill my ice back up. I would go back into the CPM machine. She'd go back to work. And then in the afternoon, I would take a cab on crutches down to the gym on the 72nd Street, and I would sit on an air ball with my foot up, and I would train my clients. Wow. And it was one of the most insanely humbling things ever for somebody who is a, a type A to an extreme, where everything is done your way, and you just take the bull by the horns to accept help from then, at that point, my girlfriend. And to accept help from the fact that I'm sitting here and I can't be the big, strong trainer and show you how to do this squat. I have to really verbalize and communicate, which actually made me very way better at that. Um, so that skill, instead of just jumping in front of someone and showing them, I had to be very more communicative. And, and it helped me a lot from a coaching standpoint. And then, um, needless to say, after that experience, she got a ring very quickly. <laughs> um, and uh, when I moved forward from that, from that microfracture and I came back, you know, I remember the first game of the season playing super nervous about my knee and I never wore a brace. My, 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 um, my PT and my surgeon, Dr. Charles Goodwin at HSS were both like, look, there's no statistical evidence to show that a, a brace works. I watch. But if it makes you, you know, right. if it makes you feel better, go then for go it, for it. Yeah. I'm like, nothing's going to make me feel better except making this thing feel solid. I, you know, I've, I've been all, you know, one of those guys never wear a back brace when I live, never use straps. I want my body to do the work. So that's just what I did. I remember second face off of the game, I end up in a, you know, rushing towards the goal and I do a diving shot into the crease and I come to the sideline and my, and my team trainer's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and, and I realized you can't turn it off, man. No, you, you can't. can't. There's no off button for that. No. So, that's where it all progressed. And I remember after that, in my experience in 2012, that's when we started the FOA. The, the clinics we did that summer took off. And then next thing I knew within over the next two years was kind of a meshing period in which I gradually started going more to full-time face-off training. And then I sold Brawlic Strength, which was a strength training company I started because I just fell in love with coaching this position so much. I mean, like, uh, there's so many things to pull away from what you just said. I mean, um, you know, going back to like the initial injury and even just having to face the reality that I'm, I may have played my last game. And, you know, every athlete, doesn't matter what sport you are, at some point in, their, in your career has to face the reality of hanging it up. And, and I think, you know, for you, you turned that, 
know, that's a really hard mental and emotional experience. And these are the things that people don't talk about when it comes to, you know, injury rehab. It's easy to kind of go through the, the programming and the strengthening and like that stuff is like, okay, I can execute. But the other part, the emotional, the mental side of recovery and being able to trust your body again is, is so hard. And it was something that I honestly never really got over. I was never the same player after my knee injury because I never regained that confidence. And, you know, and um, again, like going back to even the fact that you had a strength and conditioning background, like how did, how did that end up coming into play? Obviously, you know, like learning how to really be a great coach and communicating on a high level um, because you had to, right? And again, like, another theme for what we're all dealing with, with, you know, coronavirus is this like necessity, you know, in a, it breeds innovation. Right. And so like you yes. had to find a way to get out of your clients and so that they're getting that high level experience, even though that you were maybe sidelined from maybe the traditional ways that you went, went about coaching them. Um, but like, yeah. how did that strength and conditioning background, like a, why strength and conditioning in college? You know, I, I told everybody on the intro that you went to Penn state um, why strength and conditioning? And, and can you tell us kind of how strength and conditioning background helped you as not only, you know, obviously an elite athlete yourself, but also as, you know, a, a coach who is inspiring an entire generation of lacrosse players right now? The, so Penn State was my dream school. My whole family went there. So it was the easiest recruiting they ever had to do. I actually wore a Penn State vest on my tux my junior year. That's high awesome. school. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, when I went to Penn State, one of the reasons I chose Penn State uh, wasn't just because my family went there, but because I wanted to study kinesiology, specifically phys ed. And Penn State had one of the greatest uh, phys ed programs in the country. And my goal in life was to be a gym teacher, uh, just because one of, two of my role models at, in high school were both gym teachers. And I just remember like, how much fun they had doing what they did, but not just the, you know, the gym part, but also... Um, the health part of it, uh, you know, the sex ed part and, and working with kids as they're going through an important part of their life and explaining to them from a scientific background, man, I'm a very science-based practical person. I'm not a, you know, an overly uh, spiritual person, I guess you could say. So for me, it was very grounded and I've always, I've always based my beliefs and thoughts on science. And I went to school to be a phys ed coach, uh, teacher. And when I was there after my first semester, um, you know, I remember talking to my, my, uh, academic advisor and she was just like, look, I'm just being straight with you. This is the, one of the most competitive schools in, in Penn state is the phys ed program and, and, uh, in, inside of the health and human development program. She said the other branched off things you could do is either physical therapy, which I didn't really have. I don't have your kind of patients. So I, I there's no way I could do that. Um, but she also said movement science and movement science kind of make my ears perk up. Because when she said phys ed, she's like, the odds of you getting the kind of job that you really want when you go into the workforce, uh, you know, you're going to kill yourself in this phys ed program, and then you're going to get out of here. And the amount of people who actually go and get a dream phys ed job at a, at a nice school is very small. Um, so she's like, yeah. you know, if you want to go into movement science, it might open up your range of, of ideas of what you want to do when you graduate. And I met my who became one of the most important mentors in my life, Brad Pantall from Penn State. He was the head strength conditioning coach um, at the time for field hockey, lacrosse, and uh, hockey, uh, hockey and a couple other sports. And um, I remember meeting him my first year and just being enamored with the idea of being a, a collegiate strength coach. And I was like, man, I love this stuff. I love, I loved when I was younger from the time, I guess I was in uh, probably ninth grade or eighth grade, the idea of having full control over what you can do with your body gave me such a sense of possession um, because parents, old, you know, cousins, coaches, teachers, everyone in your life is telling you what to do when you're a kid. So to have that idea of I have full control over what I do with my body, what I put in my body, how I build it, what I do with it, um, was such an, a unique idea to me and I always bought in with that so training and lifting and all that stuff was very important to me at that aspect throughout my life and when I started to talk to Brad and really understand what he did for a living I was like this guy I love this job like I could totally wake up jacked up to do this every day so that's when I changed my path and I loved it my problem in life is if something's not intrinsic I don't care so I would skip like stat 200 class to come, <laughs> to come talk to Brad about 
post-synaptic neurons. Right, right. right? So like, you know, neuroanatomy, A, stat 200, D. So that was my problem as a college kid, <laughs> for sure. Um, but it helped me so much when I graduated because then I was able to apply what I knew, not just to my current job, but now to this face-off stuff. So when I'm breaking things down for kids, I find myself every day giving them a crash course in biomechanics. And it's fun. I love teaching it and I love understanding it and I love seeing the way things change. And, um, you know, I, I have everything to, to thank to that for sure. Yeah, man, it's, it's really awesome. And, you know, again, like for, the, for people that don't, or maybe, again, my listening base is probably a lot of clinicians and, you know, maybe people that aren't familiar with professional lacrosse and, you know, just kind of this whole idea that you have to have like a full-time career and then play lacrosse professionally on the weekends, right. It is kind of obviously what is now changing, you know, mm -hmm. with the premier lacrosse league, which is really awesome. But for you to take that passion and that like that fire and then be able to translate it to something that maybe that's slightly unrelated, maybe like face off specific is really, really cool. And it kind of brings up this, uh, concept of like when you have understanding uh, over a subject matter versus knowledge, you understand what I'm saying? Like you can know yeah. stuff and like be able to regurgitate information, but when you have understanding and then you can apply that understanding to something maybe that's a little bit different or maybe something completely different, that's kind of where the magic uh, can really occur. And, and again, I got, I've gotten to witness it not only as an athlete back in, you know, like my day, but to watch you take these biomechanical, pro, um, you know, uh, concepts and apply it to the face-off and and also then be able to translate it and teach it in a way that's digestible for a 14 year old kid 15 yeah. right and like you said it's a very you know it's a highly uh important time in a, in a young man and young woman's development um but it's also one of those things where you can really start to plant some seeds and you know watching the foa national showcase the last few years has been awesome to see some of these kids uh you know take what you've created in that curriculum and, and translated into something that's really cool. Yeah, I, um, I appreciate that. And I think that I think when it comes to being successful, um, at least from my perspective, it's, it's a combination of a big brother mentality, right? Where these kids understand that I have no ulterior motive. I've, I've lived my life, like I'm, I've done what I want to do. But my goal even though I've only met you for a week is that I want you to experience what I got to experience, which was to reach your potential in something. And I think that's so sacred to be able to say that when I die, I know that I was as good as I could humanly be at one thing, at least, which was face-offs. I tapped out, like I maxed my, my potential out because I studied it religiously. I knew everything about it because I wanted to be an expert on it. And I think, you know, especially coming from the strength training world, uh, more so, I guess, the personal fitness industry of, you know, fake it till you make it um, was not something that I like. I don't like the concept of that. I believe very strictly, like you will never see me giving anyone advice on something I'm not an expert in. And, and I feel very strongly about that. So um, being able to be an expert in something because you religiously want to be as good as you can at it, uh, helped me so much because kids know that when I tell them something, it's going to work. And, you know, I have no other ulterior motive because if I tell you something that doesn't work, you go out and you do it and it doesn't work. My, my, all of my legitimacy goes away. Uh, and then the other part of it is almost to a detriment is when you work with kids and you care about them, they respond quickly because they understand that you really care about them and their experience. The downside of that is when they either stray from you or you feel like they're not really taking it seriously, it hurts a little bit because you're investing emotionally in them. And, you know, I, I know for you as a physical therapist, when you're training with people and you see them either, you know, uh, you know, just cashing it in and not doing the stuff they should be doing at home, or maybe they're training to feel good enough, but they're not getting fully healthy. It, you, it must be the same feeling for you. Like, dude, I emotionally... Sure want you to feel I want you to live a healthy life I, what, why don't you just listen <laughs> and and there's so many people like that who who listen enough but they don't actually hear you dude that's like one of the hardest things in my career to this day is and to, and and I'm going to be perfectly transparent with you like I'm very good at recognizing those clients now early on in the process that I care more than they care Mm -hmm. And, and I've started to like, just not work with those people because yeah. it's so emotionally taxing for me 
because like to, and again, and, and maybe selfishly in a way, because then it's also, you know, like when people return to sport, you know, and, and I was part of that process, the level at which they return is a reflection on, you know, my work and what I do. And so I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, careful now about, you know, working with specific athletes and where they are mentally. And, and that's part of it. Right. And I talk about this biopsychosocial model all the time and you're innately doing it with the FOA where you understand there's a huge psychological mental component to the face off. There's a huge social component to the, to the coach athlete relationship. And, you know, classically that coach athlete relationship is do as I say, not as I do. And um, I'm the boss and you're going to follow everything I say, but like you really do lead by example. And because, you know, like even on social media, you know, I was talking to my friend Tim on the last episode about just authenticity to its extreme level. And if anybody's following you, and again, if, if you're not following Greg beast 32 on Instagram, you're doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> because it is authentically your life and you share that. Uh, and it is really inspiring to see like your interaction with your son, Jax and watching him grow up kind of on Instagram as like a, like a fly on the wall has, has been really cool. And there's been many moments where I was like, damn, I wish Greg was my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to my wife. Maybe we can adopt you. Oh, uh, sign the papers. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny with the social media thing is authenticity is, is important. And I, and I, I made the mistake of assuming that younger kids were just better at this naturally than we were. So when I'm bringing on coaches, I, I didn't realize that this is something that has to be learned. Um, and when it comes to my social media, you can kind of twist your personas a little bit, but the messages are the same. Like for instance, I never get political on Instagram um, because most of the audience is kids and they don't really care about my political views. Um, but on Twitter where it's more of an adult world, I feel very obligated to speak up when I see injustice or when I see something that I don't like. Um, I don't believe in this concept of my wrong opinion is just as valid as your correct opinion. Um, so <laughs> I don't just, you know, I, I know this whole America free speech thing is important and it is, uh, but I think there should also be a litmus test for throwing out crap. That's not true. Um, but I do believe very strongly in, you know, someone had said something, uh, you know, last year or whatever in passing, I had, had made a comment about, um, you know, politics in general. And they say, why don't you stick to lacrosse? And I was like, oh, okay. So your opinion is more valid because you're not good at lacrosse. Is that what you're saying? And that's <laughs> yeah, my, right. my, my point is, is I'm not a lacrosse player. I am a human being who is a brother and a son and a father and a husband. And I have a duty to use my platform to speak out so that more people understand things because I don't believe that people are bad people. I believe that they're misinformed. Uh, we're, we're purposely misinformed sometimes. Sure. Um, so I think that authenticity is important and, and people need to see who you are sometimes. And I think a lot of people, especially in the sports realm or whatever, they back off from it because they don't want to hurt their brand. And I'm kind of the exact opposite. I don't want you to follow me if you don't like people using, you know, giving you, truth. Uh, and if I have a duty if, if of anything is to speak up because I want my son one day to be able to read my tweets and I want him to sit there and go, you know, my dad cared, you know, and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't sit there at 3am drunk, just spouting off crap. But when I find something that's important, I want to talk about it. And I think people shy away from things that are uncomfortable. And, and this goes back to what you do for a living. What I do for a living is sometimes you just got to fight through the pain a little bit. You know, the pain is learned knowledge. And, you know, like when you're getting your knee bent to 90 degrees and it feels like it's going to snap, there's a lot of trust involved with, I know you know what you're doing. I'm going to trust you. And even though this is way out of my comfort zone right now, on the other side of this is a better day. And I think we have to take the same concept with knowledge is it's not always what you want to hear. And it, it might be spitting right in the face of what you believe in, but it's important it's important to understand it. So you know how to process it and move forward because I have a duty to do that for my son. My son's not going to want to hear what I have to say a lot of times, but it's important that he hears it because it's the truth. And, um, you know, not to get too real on this, but that's, that's just where I stand as a person. I think when you are authentic, I think people don't get enough credit. They can tell kids can tell when you're full of crap and it's important for us to be truthful. Yeah. I love that. I mean, you know, again, I know getting to know you personally, getting to know you as an athlete, you know, you're one of the realest dudes, but you know, again, you do carry with it a, a large degree of emotion because you do care. 
like, and, and when you do give a shit that just comes through. Um, and when you're being inauthentic, and again, I think like, again, authenticity is such a, it's thrown around so much, especially on mm-hmm. social media. And, you know, people will say it because it, I guess it's like a prerequisite now for being like an influencer or whatever, but th- there's very few people who are truly authentic and are willing to, you know, put themselves a walk out to that ledge and put themselves out on that ledge and be open to criticism and be open to hate. And, and for the purpose of promulgating, you know, information that's, that's valid, you know, or, or a stance that's valid that people can get behind and say, Oh, that makes sense to me now. I understand. Right. And so, yeah, no, I, I totally admire that about you. Not again, as a human being, um, I think one of the reasons why you and I kind of vibed right off the bat and, um, again, I, I think we operate in a very similar way in that, in that, uh, in that regard. I mean, when I first was introduced to you, knowing your background in exercise science and movement science, like that for a clinician could be kind of intimidating because, you know, I know, I know for a fact there's people out there that just spew bullshit because they can. And like most people don't know. So they will take you at your word. Like you're somebody who has gone done the research and gone done the knowledge. And so, you know, like we were able to have that real conversation and be, and be a hundred percent transparent. And then obviously we, we came to a place where it was like, okay, this is going to work out great for both of us. So. Yeah. And I think we both believe that to be an expert in a field or to truly understand something, you have to be open to the idea that you don't know everything. No, tr- right. Yeah. Just because you're an expert, 100%. like I, I consider myself an expert in face-offs, but there might be something going on. Like there might be a kid doing something weird, some kind of movement that I've never seen before. And I learned from my kids telling me about it so I can then go break it down. I came into to your room, a complete open book to learning. And I think you also had this open book of tell me more about your movements. Because even though we're both face-off guys, we are both very, we, we both understand that the rules change every couple of years, sticks change, things might be slightly different. So you were completely open to hearing what I had to say. And I was more than open to hearing what you had to say. And I think that is what, you know, when people talk about – you know, oh, people can't have debates anymore or an argument of ideas. It's like, no, people can still do that. It's just that when two strangers get on social media and they have their own agenda and they just want to yell at each other, that's not a discussion. Right. That's not a debate. You know, a discussion and a debate is a matching of ideas from two people that are open to hearing it. And I think that's why you and I got so much done. People at home have to understand, I literally couldn't bend over and tie my shoes before I met you. And then I was able to have, as an old man, I was about 10 years older than everybody I faced off against my final year in the MLL. And I led the league in every statistical category. And I think it was my third best year ever because of you, because I was able to move. Dude, you executed, man. I just, I just showed you some stuff, you know what I mean? And and again, (laughs) and I I think the big point there too is, is, is that's a process, right? Mm-hmm. Engaging with another human being is a process. It's not a destination. It's not a, like you said, like when people have their own agenda and they're just not willing to hear the other side because they have to get their point across first. And then it's just a pissing match. You know what I mean? There's no constructive growth out of that scenario, but when you're willing to hear somebody, you're willing to listen first, right? I think it was Jimi Hendrix says that um, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. Yes. Right? And so you're, when you're able to hear somebody and then, and then take what you do know and be able to work with them on it in a process-driven way is when magical shit can start to happen, which is really, you know, the really cool thing. And, and again, dude, that means so much to me, but you did the work. I, I just, you know, did my, my small part in, in your amazing journey. Um, and it was a privilege, man. It was really a privilege. I think one of the favorite moments of my athletic training career was standing on that sideline for your final MLL game and getting to watch you, you know, take that bow, uh, which didn't really last that long. <laughs> technically, I was retired from the MLL. I technically right. retired yes, you were. Yes, totally. But you weren't done with I've lacrosse been... yet. No. You weren't done with lacrosse no, but yet. It was, uh, it was a hell of a ride. And I think that when it comes to this whole idea, you said growth. And I think that's pretty much, I'm doing a lot of webinars right now, just speaking to high school programs and other kids who kind of lost their seasons. Coaches are asking to come in because sometimes we do some motivational speaking as well. And, and one of my big things is growth. I think, you know, I don't have the luxury of having extra time anymore, right? I have a son, I, I'm married, and I'm trying at the same time to run a, a company. And 
I don't have time to do anything that's not going to help me grow. So I tell Wait, you people, mean like, you mean the lockdown didn't give you all this extra time that wasn't there before? <laughs> Isn't that a joke? <laughs> yeah, I feel, I'm spending more time doing this, talking to people than ever. Right, right. But like when it comes to my life, I, I think I tell people all the time, maybe instead of waking up in the morning looking for a reason to be upset, wake up in the morning looking to solve a problem, whether it's for yourself or other people, right? So yeah, like I said, I'll say something on Twitter. It's something that's my opinion. But I'm not – if someone shoots something back, I'm not arguing with you, dog. Like, I'm not here to argue on Twitter. That's not right. what I'm here to do. I don't care if you agree with me or not. Um, but the same thing goes for life. Like, I wake up in the day and I go, what are the problems I have? Or what are issues that my coaches or my kids have? And I go and I wake up and I start solving problems. And I feel like, you know, that's what you do for a living. That's the way I approach my life. Because if I'm solving – if you're waking up in the morning looking for reasons to solve problems and help, you're going to go to bed every night with a sense of accomplishment. The people who go to bed angry or up at until three in the morning on Twitter or have serious issues are the ones who are just scrolling through their life, looking for reasons to shoot back and get upset. Sure. And if you have that much time, I'm jealous. Uh, But at the same time, you're not going to have a fulfilling life. It's all about solving issues. And, and, And in those times that you're solving a problem, you're creating a memory, right? Like you and I, you worked on my lower back. And through that process of, of you working with me and helping me, we have memories together, sure. right? We have, like you just talked about, that, that last game or just hanging out at the table and catching up. Like, you know, we became friends through that process. And that's because I woke up one day and instead of complaining about my back, I went and I searched out a way to fix it. Yeah. And I think that's what people need to get from this is when you wake up in the morning, look for something to, to solve. And you will feel very fulfilled every night when you go to bed, for sure. You know, like you said before, like when you, when you have that realization that there are so many things that you can control and you start to take ownership of that, of what you can control. And like one of the things that I love to do every morning is I start my day, I wake up and I say three things that I'm grateful for. You start your day with that kind of intention of just acknowledging the things that you're grateful for. Like, let, let's be brutally freaking real right now. This sucks. You know what I mean? Like I would have so much rather to have you here and sit down and talk with you in person. Um, That was my plan originally, but like, and and this sucks for everybody. But when I really look at what the, the environment, you know, and the, what's going on in the country and in the world right now, I'm so fortunate, man. Like I am better off than so many people. And I'm grateful for that. You know what I mean? Even though it's hard for me too, and I'm struggling with my own stuff just as much, but you know, um, it, it's such a powerful thing. And I love that you resonate that message through the FOA and start filtering it to these younger kids because they may not realize it now, but in a few years, when they're a little bit more mature and they've, they've dealt with a little bit more hardship or they've gone through their own individual struggles, those lessons are going to, like you said, those memories are going to pop up. And I think, yeah. uh, and I'm really grateful for my scars. I'm grateful for the adversity in, the, in my life that I've had to overcome because it makes me appreciate the things I have and the, and the things that I can do and I, I have yeah. control over. Um, and so again, to see you disseminate that to a younger generation and, and not only just put it out there, but have it be received. And I think a lot of times, you know, I get to, you know, a lot of teachers and, and people now dealing with this online curriculum and trying to connect and they're talking about how hard it is to connect in this medium but like when when you get people to believe you get people to buy into the process which is what you've done so well with the foa again like watching these kids at the national showcase like 300 kids from all over the country come to one location to to have a showcase but just even their mindsets you can see the lessons of the foa uh revealed through the guys and and through the athletes which is unbelievable man and again i Thank you. Uh, I just yeah, want to I, commend you for that because that is the magic shit that so many people just are missing the point. Like you said, with the, all these online trainers that are popping up, like they're just missing the point, you yeah. know? And I, I think, and I don't, I don't, I don't dislike anybody getting on there and trying to stay relevant at all. I, I no, not at all. Uh, but at the same time, um, there, there is a, and like you said, like that national showcase weekend. Yeah. It's about face-off guys. It's about face-off guys competing and it's a recruit, you know, people get recruited based on the results there for sure. Um, but we try to bring in people to speak to, you know, Scott Ratliff came in. I don't know if you got a chance to hear him speak this year, but he blew the doors off of it. Yeah, he was um, awesome. And uh, you know, 
I think one of our I, I remember some idiot out there a few years ago when FOA started uh, would go on Instagram and Twitter and be like, you should be teaching, not preaching. And I was like, if you don't have something, some kind of message to preach about in your life, then you literally should just shut up yeah. because that means you have nothing useful to say. If you don't have right? something in your belly that burns so hot that the only way to quench it is to get, get it out, then, then you're, yeah. Like yeah, if you're anything you're teaching at that point is going to get missed. Right. Any monkey can do that. Yep. But the idea is to use, just like these kids, I tell them every day, lacrosse, your, your goal in life is to be a professional lacrosse player. If your goal is to play in college, your goal is to take your studies and use the lacrosse stick as the final way to get to the school that you need to get to so that you can get a good life afterwards. I do the same thing. I use my whistle to get you in front of me so that I can teach you lessons that will last way longer than after you're done playing lacrosse um, because I'm more sensitive to it. People are like, why do you care? I have a son now. And, you know, it's funny. When I see somebody who I find to be off-putting, the first place that my head goes to is, Jesus, that person also reproduces. <laughs> which means my kid is going to have to deal with your kid. Who's probably going to be a jerk too. So my thought is if I can try to stop as many kids from being jerks as possible, maybe my son will have a better shot out there one day. Uh, and God knows we could use less jerks now than ever. Oh, dude, you're hit the nail on the head. I don't know if you could say it any better than that. It's, it's totally <laughs> true too. It's awesome. Um, all right. So I, I think kind of like the last thing I, I really wanted to maybe get your insight on is just kind of like, uh, you know, that team USA run the gold medal, you know, obviously, you know, your decision to come back and play the P the inaugural season of the PLL. Can you take us through like that thought process? Cause I do remember those days on the table, like in the final MLL season and you knew, you know, the, the world lacrosse games was going to be the thing that you were going to, you know, dot yeah. the eye with, but yeah. you know, obviously you and your wife at that point had been like, okay, this is it, right. This is the last mm -hmm. ride. This is going to be, you know, the transition point. And, and obviously that was a, not an easy decision to make for you, you know, and I know no. that. Um, no, it was tough. Um, especially the season that you had, like you said, like you, you know, put together one of those seasons that's just like, damn, man. And I did this at, you know, X age, you know, whatever it is. So can you tell yeah. us about like kind of that thought process and kind of how you were feeling in that time? And yeah, I think one, I had a championship under my belt and, you know, I had, pretty much I had broken every record in the league. I had, you know, I've had an MVP award. I've played in all-star games. I had nothing else to prove in the professional ranks. The one thing that still burned for me was in 2014 in the world games, we had a silver medal. And, you know, when I spoke to my wife about it, she has always been an amazing soldier. She's always been super supportive of me playing lacrosse at the professional level, even though she knew it wasn't a moneymaker for me, it was something that really meant a lot to me. Um, and that lifestyle is not easy. I mean, like, again, no. it's, I'm not, you know, I don't want to make it sound like no. that was an obstacle for you, but it, it's, it's in a tremendously hard lifestyle for you as an individual, but also your family, because yes. you're on the road traveling for every single weekend in the summer, which is a time that families usually spend together. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then obviously having a, you know, put your nose on the grindstone and, and go to work during the week to, to make yeah. a living, you know? And so it's a really tough thing. Yeah. And for, so people understand it was one thing when we were dating, we were living in the same apartment in New York and I was home year round working as a strength coach. And then during the summer I was gone seven or eight weekends. Now it had turned into full-time FOA coach, which means I was traveling at least two to three weekends a month year round. Right. And then during the summer I would travel for instance, on a Friday morning to go play in Charlotte. I would practice Friday play Saturday, stay Sunday and do a clinic, come home Monday. And then maybe like there were days where I would just go and I would hop on a plane in the morning at 6 a.m., fly to Portland, run a two hour clinic in Oregon, and then get right back on a plane, fly home. Oh and God. so back then the, the huge difference was I was gone all the time. And then when we uh, had Jackson in 2016, that's when it was like, okay, you can't be gone all the time now. Like this, this has to be a limit to how long we can do this. Um, and the discussion was, all right, well, we'll play one more year in 2018, but I mean, in 2017, you have to decide after 2017, do you want to play one more year of MLL or in 2018, do you want to go for a gold medal? Cause you can't do both. 
because the taxing travel of all that on top of my duties as a coach was going to be impossible. So right, right, right. we made the very clear decision that 2017 would be it. And we announced it at the beginning of the season. So there was no speculation. I didn't want it to be a distraction. I wanted people to know. And I also thought maybe if we say it at the beginning of the season, maybe we'll get some more butts in the seats for people who haven't had a chance to watch us play. Worked out fine. And I fully prepared to get ready for the 2018 gold medal run. And, uh, you know, we got it done. And after we got it done, I just remember running off the field. Like, I was like, wow, my last time playing competitive lacrosse will be a gold medal. That's pretty that's, incredible. Yeah, it's a pretty freaking awesome way to go out. Yeah. Man. Now, up to that point, I had heard the rumblings of the PLL. I had seen, you know, Paul on some call, uh, conference calls, and um, I knew it was coming. Uh, and then when I got home after the World Games in July, uh, a couple weeks went by, and then I, I started helping the PLL with new face-off rules, um, rules that I deeply believe would be the next step for our position in our sport. And when we got through doing all these rules, I was like, wow, this is pretty awesome. Like, I'm kind of jealous of these face-off guys. This is going to be a better way of facing off. It'll be better for everybody. And then I was in California. I was literally sitting at a Lifetime Fitness in California in the lobby about to go work out. Tom Schreiber called me and literally just threw it up there and was like, do you want to play? I was like, man. <laughs> like, and, and back then, so people understand, the max contract in the PLL, I mean, in the MLL, was $12,000 for an entire summer. So that's not even, it's not even a grand a game. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, some guys were getting more, but it was kind of like under the table, secret stuff. The PLL's um, minimum contract was 25. So when they started talking about it, I was like, look, you're going to have to pay me enough to either make my wife be willing to listen or to cover <laughs> my divorce lawyer because she's going to kill me. <laughs> And it was literally one of those, they sent me the contract and I like come around the corner in the living room like, hey, uh, I got to talk to you about something. Um, and uh, look, I explained it to her and she got it right away. It didn't take much. It was like, this is how much they're going to pay me. They're also covering, this is like your full benefits. So you get your medical insurance through the league, which wasn't a thing in the MLL. And on top of that, uh, this is going to be the new big thing. I know for a fact this is going to take off. 150 guys from the old league are going to the new league. They have all these new rules that are so much more innovative. It's going to be on NBC Sports. If I'm not part of this, I feel like from a business standpoint, I'm going to get left behind. And she totally got it, totally understood it, and was fully on board. And that was the goal. It was like That's one awesome. season, no matter how it ends, I'm playing one season, and it paid off. You know, I did well, made the All-Star game. We, we lost it overtime in the championship in a packed stadium in Philly. Yeah. Um, so I, I was happy and I, you know, I was like, okay, this is it for me. And I'm very happy. And I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm glad about the run that I had. I had zero regrets about how anything went in my career. Everything happened the way it was supposed to, including my knee injury, obviously. And, um, you know, I'm just glad and very blessed to be where I'm at. Yeah, man. Pain and injury can be such a great teacher if you let the lesson happen. Right. If, yeah. you just, if you take the lesson, um, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Cause I know Jax is probably looking for, you know, his superhero buddy, um, future of lacrosse, because this is something that, you know, I love lacrosse. It's been a huge part of my life, you know, and obviously typically regionally a thing, but in the grand scheme of like a national recognition, it's not something that's, you know, mainstream, so to speak. But what do you, where do you see the future of lacrosse? You know, obviously the PLL is, you know, forging kind of a new direction, which is so awesome to watch and be able to see that take place. But like, where, where would, where do you think it's going and where would you like to see it be ultimately? I think the PLL's tour-based uh, tour model is 100 what we need right now. Um, yeah, it's genius. I know from experience as a player, they made playing in the league way easier than it had been it used to feel like an, a crazy grind and it was nothing against anybody in ml let's be totally real pll would not exist right now without the ml okay the ml totally. was the springboard pl is where it's at now and the pl is the next step and the tour-based model you come in as an athlete 24 hours for the game you train you practice you study film you play the next day the games are shorter the field is shorter it's way more action-packed the rules are more fun it's, it's a presentation is what I love about it. Yeah, totally. Is, you know, marching onto the field together, you know, almost like a Premier League game. 
Um, you know, the stands are, are packed. They have a fan village out there. It's awesome. And it was a way – and the presentation on NBC was insane. It was awesome. Um, so best it was best lacrosse experience as a, as a, as a fan oh, yeah. that, that I've ever seen. Just like, yes. again, because it had that – it had that NFL meets, you know, like, you know, like world-class soccer kind of blend in terms of its 100%. production value, in terms of, you know, just its engagement, uh, not only with the athletes, but like, you know, it's just a totally different, ex- it's, it's more of an experience now than it was, than it yeah. is just a sport or just a game that's taking place. And, and, I, and I think the, it took balls to just innovate, right? We're going to cut the field 10 yards we're going to bring the wings in. We're going to have introduced slightly different face-off rules. Uh, we're going to not have host cities. We're just going to do a tour-based model. And I remember everyone was like, well, if I don't have a home team to cheer for, how am I going to be? Dude, the ML averaged like 1,000 people a game. Right. So if, if Hofstra Stadium, we, could, we would pack one side, but we wouldn't pack both sides of the stadium. So in one of the greatest hotbeds of lacrosse on earth, we couldn't pack a stadium on a Friday or Saturday night then don't sit here and tell me that you have to have a host city for franchises. Now, the tour-based model is phenomenal, but it can't last forever because you're going to have too many teams eventually where you can't just sit there and do a tour-based model. Right. So the thought process I've had, I would love it if the MLL would stick around. I would love it if we had a situation, even if it all merged together for one big league, I think it would be very cool to have host cities and franchises. But instead of doing like a standard regular season all-star game and then you do like your playoffs to have host cities and then at the end of the season and maybe the top six teams or the top four teams do a tour-based playoff where now we're traveling to maybe four weekends and you start with a certain spot, seed or whatever, and then whoever comes out on top after that then has the championship. And I cool. think what you would end up with is something similar to European soccer, right? So you have your league, then you have your premier league, and then you have your championship. And I think that would be a really cool experience because at the very least, I'd like there to be a minor league, which essentially has become the other league now, right? right. So the guys who are at the very top of the game for the most part who aren't contractually obligated not to be are in the PLL. And they get the you know financially, but they also get – the exposure to their brand and what goes with that. And then that next tier is all these guys who are in the MLL, which is awesome because they never would have gotten a shot otherwise. Right. You know, I never would have been drafted in the MLL if they didn't go to 10 teams the year before. Um, so, I, you know, there's guys out there that never would have gotten a shot and maybe they become something way bigger in the pros like I did. So I would love for there to be more professional lacrosse players out there. Um, and I think eventually you'll get to a point where the tour based model can't work just because there's too many, there's just too many teams, right? Uh, unless you wanted to do an East and West coast centric tour. Um, but the cool thing what people understand is the tour based model was able to take all resources and put them in one city at a time. So you have full PTs, doctors, you have the whole event staff, everybody's in one place every weekend. So it makes it so much easier to uh, pull your resources and make it a better over-the-top experience for everybody. And also, if you're a kid who's in St. Louis and you know for a fact that they're only co- – all the best players in the world are coming to your city for one weekend. Right. Better get there. You're going to show instead up. Of being, yeah. Yeah, instead of being like, oh, you know, I can't make this home game. I'll just come to the next one. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's going to be the future, and we'll see how it goes. But for, for sure, the PLL is the catalyst to it. That is awesome, man. Uh, again, I just want to say thank you one more time for, for taking time out of your day and, and jamming with me a little bit. I was super excited to get you on. Um, for those of the listeners that may want to reach out to you or, or interested in the FOA, like what are some ways they can get in touch with you? Yeah, so GregBees32 on all social media platforms. What the hell's going on out there? Uh, <laughs> GregBees32 on all social media platforms. Um, and then the Face Off Academy on Instagram. And the faceoffacademy.com is our home website. If you are interested in uh, whether it's across highlights, drills, or any applications to what we teach, you can go to youtube.com slash Greg which is my channel, and uh, you find out everything you need to know. 
Very, very cool, man. Well, th again, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it. And best of luck with, you know, obviously stay safe, stay healthy, send your family my best. Um, and like I said, if there's any, anything ever I can do for you guys, you just say the word and consider it done. So ladies and gentlemen, Greg the Beast Grenlian, um signing off here on another episode of the Movement Underground Radio. Uh, if you haven't yet, please hit that subscribe button and give us a like, leave us a comment, and we will definitely answer you back. But again, Greg, I just want to say thanks, brother, and I really do appreciate you. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you too, man. Take care. Right. Take care. You be well. Thanks for listening to the Movement Underground Radio. If you like the episode, please subscribe so that you're notified when new episodes drop. You can follow us on Instagram at the Movement Underground. You can follow me on Instagram at Mike Stella underscore ATC. Please visit us on the web at themovementunderground.com and check out our YouTube channel at The Movement Underground. If you guys have any questions or would like to leave a comment, please do so or reach out to us through any one of those channels. We'd be happy to get back to you. Uh, if you would like to be featured on The Movement Underground Radio, definitely drop us a line and we can talk. So we hope you liked it and we'll see you guys next time.